Thanks for listening. Join us now for Perry and Shauna Replay from 89.3 Moody Radio. This may sound strange, but I consider shame to be a friend. But it's been a long journey to get there. When I was eight, I was pierced with the wound of shame. And the message was, what you've done, Perry, is who you are and who you'll always be. And there's no hope. That, of course, was a lie, but I believed it because I felt it so deeply. But that deep sense of shame also provided a place in my heart that really needed to be embraced by God's perfect love. And that's what he began doing when I was 10. So the wound was there, and the lie was still there, and I still believed it, but I also knew God loved me. It wasn't until I was in my 30s that I really began to see that I was still believing the lie. And I was believing it because the wound was still there and I felt it so deeply. It was so painful. And again, the lie of shame is this. You know, it has a few different variations, but I think it's this. What you've done is who you are. It's your identity. What you've done is who you are. It's who you'll always be. And there's no hope for you. So I'm in my 30s. That's when a Jedi Master mentor helped me see the difference between what God says is true and what my feelings say are true. Now, I knew this in theory, but I didn't live it out. I didn't know how to live it out. And the light went on. I realized that the truth of God's love for me is rock solid, even when my feelings scream otherwise. Maybe you can relate. And so I began to cling to the truth in the face of my feelings of shame. And the Lord literally began healing my mind and rewiring my brain as I chose time after time to believe the truth and reject the lie. So now, when I feel shame, I know it's lying to me. But why do I still feel it? Why do you still feel it if you know it's not true? Because it's a wound. I don't believe the lie of shame, but I still experience the wound of shame. Jesus still has his scars. But here's the redemptive thing. My wound of shame drives me to Jesus. It's a space in my heart that I need Jesus to keep on embracing. And he will keep on doing that for you and me. And when Jesus does that, embraces me time after time when I feel the shame, it just makes me feel loved. It makes his love go deeper into my heart. And that's why I can say that shame has become a dear friend. I wouldn't know Jesus the way that I do without the shame that I have. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness fills His lovely face, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand, All other ground is sinking sand When mountains fall 
and planets break on Christ alone I'll stand His oath, His covenant, His blood support me This is from Proverbs 13, 12. When hope is crushed, the heart is crushed. Maybe there's been something you've been praying for, hoping for, trusting God for, and so far, all you have is a silent heaven. I can relate to that. I had been asking God for some direction and took the months of June, July, and August to really just seek God's direction, some clear direction. And I was hoping for that by September 1st. Now, September 1st came, And I was more unsure about God's direction than when I first started praying about it on June 1st. Maybe you can relate with that. Again, the proverb says, when hope is crushed, the heart is crushed. Or in another translation, hope deferred makes the heart sick. From the 1st of September to the 6th of September, I was in a funk, in a cloud, not able to see my hand in front of me. The fog was so thick. When we don't know what the next step is, and when we've been asking and asking, and the Lord hasn't answered, yes, when hope is crushed, the heart is crushed, and yet, when we don't get that answer, 
the Lord is still with you and me. As Paul said somewhere in one of his letters, I'm perplexed, but not in despair. I have often in my journey with Jesus been perplexed, but not in despair. On Wednesday, September 6th, at about two in the afternoon, I sat down in my sunroom and I said, Lord, where do you want my thoughts to go? I just need some renewing. And he brought some scripture to mind from Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, and I just chewed on those scriptures, and the Lord just renewed my mind. And then I opened my eyes, and it was like the fog just lifted, and I could see clearly with the eyes of faith. It was the peace that surpasses circumstance that just settled on me, and faith filled my heart that it's going to be okay. And then the thought, Perry, it's okay to take the next step. So not everything is resolved in this seeking God's direction for me. But when you have God's peace, that sense of it's going to be okay. You know what I mean? And when God says, just take the next step, you know, that's all you really need. Because when we can't see very far ahead, we just go as far ahead as we can see. When hope is crushed, the heart is crushed. But there's a second part of that Proverbs I didn't share with you. When hope is crushed, the heart is crushed, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. The Lord answers in his time. In the meantime, let's just keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, keep on taking the next step. Patience, you know, it's something I struggle with a lot myself. I want things to happen on my time and when it's convenient. Same. Thank you. Yeah, I feel yeah. validated. Yeah, I'm, I'm there with you. <laughs> well, when I was interviewing here at Moody for my current role, which, you know, looking back at it now has been quite some time, yeah. uh, patience was one thing I didn't really have. You know, I bugged our station manager and our fearless leader, Jack Havman, uh, more than once after my interview with the team and wondering if a decision had been made. My wife, Laura, and I really felt strongly about the opportunity here, and, and waiting for a decision to be made was a very clear test of my patience. During the evening hours, after Lauren had gone to bed, I would normally spend time reading my journaling Bible, trying to uh, you know get through the Bible, and just a uh, nice quiet time. House was quiet. Everything's dark. You got one light. And really nice time. Mm-hmm. Some nights I would read. Other nights I would struggle to read and with you know keeping my focus and Instead of reading, I would sometimes turn through my Bible and look at past sermons I had journaled. Mm-hmm. One sermon that I would stumble upon quite frequently was in James chapter 5, 7 through 11. It was a sermon about patience, clearly something I needed during that time. And it reads like this, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. 
looking back at it now, it's kind of fitting how the Lord would bring me to that one page out of the 1,573 pages in my Bible. Yeah, it's in a larger print than some Bibles. So it sounds to me like you really, it was a growing time for you as you were waiting and it made you kind of dive in a little bit more to God's word and such. That would be a a really good uh, observation there. Yeah. It was really a learning and a growing time for myself. Yeah. And then you had to put up with me during the several interviews. You know, I would just, I was grilling you. Yeah, you were, you were. I mean, I, I'm not going to lie about that. Perry was a, he was a difficult person to deal with. (laughs) I wasn't. Was I mean? No, no, you weren't, you weren't mean at all, but, uh, you know, there were some tough questions you asked and, and, uh, man, that was, they were tough answers as well. Yeah. 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 You did a great job though. You handled them, especially that one last time you came in, we just peppered you and man, you knocked it out of the park. So there we go. Way to go. Well, if you struggle with patience, like I do, I've got some great news for you this morning. God gives us the chance to build patience. And God is patient with you. Mm-hmm. And waiting for God is not lazy. Don't ever let someone tell you that it is. Right. Everything will happen in God's time, not mine or yours. And that can be the hardest part about being patient. I would really love to encourage you to pray when you feel impatient. Be honest with the Lord in your prayer. Being honest is not complaining to the Lord. The Lord wants to hear your heart and be honest in your prayers. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. That's one small step for man. July 21st, 1969, 10.56 Eastern Time. American astronaut Neil Armstrong became the first person to walk on the moon. And he blazed a trail for 11 other Americans to take that same walk. And like Neil Armstrong being the first, Jesus is the first human to do something infinitely greater, paving the way for you and me to follow. There's a title given to Jesus in the New Testament that's only used twice, Colossians 1.18 and Revelation 1.5. The entire story of God's plan to heal creation is in this title. Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead. If you're familiar with the Jesus story, you know this has to be referring in some way to the resurrection. But what is Paul getting at with firstborn from the dead? It does have something to do with the resurrection. New Testament scholar Dr. Clinton Arnold says what Paul has in mind with firstborn is the rights and privileges of a firstborn son of a king, a son who will inherit the kingdom from his father. So with firstborn from the dead, listen, Paul is saying that Jesus has inherited from his father immortality. But wait, why does Jesus need to inherit immortality? He's already God. He's already immortal. As God, yes, but not as a human. Jesus, as a human, had a beginning in Mary's womb. And think about it. Every human since Adam has died because of sin. But Jesus came to do what Adam couldn't do. He came to live the perfectly obedient life that we have failed to live. And because he did it, 
the Father raised him from the dead. Because he was the first human being to pull off a perfect life, he inherited immortality from God. And get this, because his perfect obedience included dying for our sins, taking the judgment day we deserve, the curse of sin is broken for you and me. Jesus has blazed the trail for us to live forever. He's the firstborn from the dead, having earned immortality from the Father so that he can give it to us as a gift. It was one act of furious love for Jesus that brought one immortal leap for mankind, for you, for me. Abdu Murray is a Muslim background believer in Jesus. He grew up in the Dearborn area in a Muslim family, went on a nine-year search of all the world religions and came to realize that Jesus is the King. Jesus is the Lord. He heads up a ministry called Embrace the Truth. You can check it out at embracethetruth.org. I'm wondering, just as a person who comes from a Muslim background Mm -hmm. and I would think that you and your family look at what's going on in the Middle East right now a bit differently from a from a different camera angle mm-hmm. than a person who grows up in we'll we'll say Christian America. Yeah. So Yeah, I'm yeah, I, I'm a little more subtle in that, I, I think, a little more nuanced in that. I'm not saying that I'm more nuanced because I'm more enlightened. That's not what it is. What is your take on the loss of life is horrible on both mm-hmm. sides? Yeah. But, you know, as a person with a Middle Eastern Muslim background, how do you view what's going on in Israel right now? So one thing that I think is important, I've written my first book was actually on this in reaction to the 2006 Hezbollah Israel war, because one thing I had seen even before I came to faith, I had seen a lot of a lot of Christians who were using what was going on as sort of fodder for their end times theories. And I began to see people thinking of, and I'm not saying all Christians do this, um, but Muslims and Jews tend to be pawns in a end times chess game. People are playing when they play newspaper theology. Um, and so I look at it and say, that almost prevented me from coming to Christ in the first place. It's like God loves certain people more because of their DNA than he loves other people. Yet I'm told that God so loved the world in John 3.16. Uh, and so that kept me from that faith for a little bit. But then you realize something as a believer in Christ from this background is that I think God does so love the world. That's everybody. There are, if the numbers are correct, uh, based on death rates and populations, there are 30,000 Muslims who will die today and not know who Jesus is. 30,000. That's a small city. There are um, a commensurate number in terms of proportionality of Jews who will die not realizing that Jesus is actually the Messiah. And so what I look at when I look at the Middle East is not some moving of chess pieces and an end times prophecy being fulfilled, but I see a tragedy of people who are made in God's image, who are killing each other because of lifelong, almost history-long animosity one to the other. Um, and there are prophecies in the Bible that don't just speak of the ill or the bad, but actually speak of the fact that God will make a road between Assyria and and Jerusalem and Egypt, and he'll call people who aren't his people, his people. Uh, So God is calling us to actually love these folks, no matter what their ethnicity and their background is, because we can't have them. Just can't, I can't live with the idea of them living in a Christless eternity. I can't fathom it. 
And so I look at it this way. Whether you're a Jew or you're a Muslim. And this, by the way, is not to excuse any heinous evil. Anybody's working on innocence. Absolutely not in no way. It's going to be condemned in no uncertain terms. When innocents die, um, it's always bad. When innocents are downtrodden or oppressed, it's always bad, no matter who's doing it. However, when I look at what goes on, you have the cries of that come from conflict, that come from loss and come from pain. You have the cry for justice. Those lousy so-and-sos, whoever those lousy so-and-sos are, did this, and they should be brought to justice. You have the, the the cry of sorrow because of the loss you've felt, whether it's a loss of rights or loss of property or loss of life or loss of sense of security, whatever it happens to be. And then you have the, the, the cry for love. The cry for love. Does the international community actually love us? What about all the animosity towards Muslims, animosity towards Jews? Uh, all these things that are swirling about now and social media is making it so much more uh, pungent now, the level of hatred level that everybody, depending on your perspective. So what you see is you see the demand for justice, you see the cry of sorrow, and you see the searching for love. Sorrow, justice, love. As a Christian, I think that the gospel is a unique message that speaks into the conflict because it was Christ himself where sorrow, justice, and love all converge on a lowly hill in an obscure province of the Roman Empire, a a hill that they fight over today to this very day. And at that one hill, everyone seems to fight over, converge, sorrow, when Jesus feels the sorrow of being forsaken for our sake. And why does he feel that way? Because he satisfies God's justice in that sin. It needs to be punished. But it's also the demonstration of God's love, because you and I and Muslims and Jews, if they accept this payment, don't need to pay it themselves. So sorrow, justice, and love converge. And so rather than make this whole thing out to be a political thing, and we have to deal with the political, we have to deal with the policy issues. We have to. I'm not saying we don't. But I say as a Christian, I look at it and say, what a tragedy if those folks don't hear the message of where sorrow, justice, and love converge. Thanks for listening to Barry and Shauna Replay. To learn more, text us at 800-968-8930. That's 800-968-8930.